predictably irrational, our patients and placebos. You're listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Gary Cohn, and joining me today is Dr. Dan Ariely, who is a professor of behavioral economics at Duke University and holds an appointment at the MIT Media Lab. Today, Dr. Ariely comes to us from his office in Durham, North Carolina. We're going to be talking about our patients and placebos. Dr. Ariely, thanks for being with us today. We appreciate it. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Before we talk about the meat of our interview here, maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about your own background and, and how you got interested in this business of placebo effects. My background and interest in behavioral economics in general is very tied to, to medicine. I was very regrettably involved in an explosion many years ago uh, that basically 70% of my body was, was burned, and I spent about three years in a burn department in Israel. As you can imagine, not the best time of anybody's life. And being in hospital, particularly for such a long time, it gives somebody a lot of opportunities to observe all kinds of irrational behaviors, which actually started me working on this topic. But the placebo one was completely amazing. So at that time, which it was about 20 years ago when I was in, in hospital, the physicians were very concerned about how much painkillers they would give us. And I would keep track on how much I had and how much I had left for the day, and I would try to kind of space it out. So, And I would also track what other patients, what, what their dosage was, just to make sure that it was fair and nobody was getting to uh, more than me because, you know, it's so painful, and I really wanted to get the max they would give me. So I would track other people. And sometimes at night I would hear other patients scream and, and shout from pain, and, and the nurses would go and give them a painkiller. And then I would, I would call them on the way back and said, you know, isn't this person kind of over their dosage? What's, what's happening? I want one too. <laughs> and quite a few times they would show me that they only gave them saline, right? Uh, water with some salt. And, and the question is, it, it, it's amazing. Like it's one thing to talk about placebo and reason about it. It's a completely different story to have a patient who is suffering kind of similar burns to me. I knew how much pain they were experiencing. I hear them screaming. They get an injection with basically nothing and, and fall comfortably to sleep. It's, it's just a, a life-altering experience. I suspect as physicians, many of us think of placebos as a rather minor, sometimes even a, a nuisance effect. And here you are describing maybe the worst kind of pain there is, yet you were impressed with the efficacy of placebo. That's right. And later when I started studying it at university, I kind of learned more about placebo and I learned about the, the, the pathway for, for placebo for pain and that it's mediated by, by opioids. And that made me kind of much more excited about it. So all of a sudden we understand something about this placebo. It wasn't just, just magic. So that was something that kind of always interests me about expectation. And I've done a lot of experiments about expectations. I, I give people beer with vinegar and I see how knowing or not knowing whether there's vinegar there changes how much they like the beer and all kinds of things about that. But at some point I decided to go back to my painkillers. And the particular question that I wanted to know was, of course, we know something about placebo, but what about the other side of medicine? So if you think about it, the medical companies and physicians take care of the substance in the medicine, this is not something I can contribute to. What about the market side? If somebody is interested in economics, I'm interested in the decisions people make. What about things like shape of the pills and the colors and the kind of bottles you get? And in particular, I became interested in the payment. What happens when we pay more? What happens when we pay less? We did one study with Sobe energy drinks, and we sold these things at high price and low price to people, 
And we showed that when we sold them at high price, they exercised longer in the gym and felt less tired. And also, amazingly, if we sold them the drink at high price or low price, and then we gave them a few minutes to rest and a set of mental exercises, some word puzzles, they actually solved more word puzzles after getting the expensive drink rather than the cheap drink. That's pretty amazing. And by the way, it didn't matter if they paid for it themselves or if we charged their parents. The moment it was high price, it didn't matter who paid for it. So then, then I wanted to go back to the painkillers. And I said, what will happen if we change the price of painkillers? Would, would the efficacy of this change as well? And that time, we also had all these internet companies that were advertising all this internet. And most of them look like they're coming from Canada, but of course, they're not really coming from Canada. So we decided to do a two-by-two two design when we would have a high price, a low price, and manufactured in China, manufactured in the U.S. And we basically did a very simple experiment. We brought people to the lab. We wanted to give them the feeling this was a medical study initially, so we checked their blood pressure and their heart rate. We asked them about medical history and their family history and so on. And then we connected them to a device that people use to give electrical shocks to mostly to animals in, in rat experiments. And we gave them a whole set of electrical shocks. And after each of those, we gave them the visual analog scale that ranged from not painful at all, very painful. We asked them to indicate on that line how painful was that. And we went on for a while with those things, got a whole range of, of electrical shocks. And then we gave them our pill, which we called Validon Rx. How do you like the name? It's a good one, but it doesn't really exist, does it? <laughs> That's right. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, and I'm speaking with Dr. Dan Ariely. We're talking about our patients and placebos. So, Dan, you're describing how you set up the study with Validone, was it? Validone Rx. Val okay. So you set that up and go ahead, please. We kind of went all out. We got pens. We made a logo. We had pens with the logo of the company. We had brochures. The whole thing was beautiful. We gave them a set of electrical shocks. Then we gave them the pill. We gave them the pill. It was actually vitamin C, a beautiful little red pill. And we gave them a brochure about it. And what we changed was what brochure they got about the pill. Then we gave them 15 minutes to rest next to some old Newsweek and Time magazine to really make it feel like a doctor's office. And back to the electrical shocks. And the question we asked was, how much will the pain reduce from the first set to the second set? That's, of course, just a placebo question, right? How much would placebo reduce pain? And not surprisingly, it reduced pain. The more interesting question was, how will this reduction be mediated by the type of brochure people got? And here is basically the, the result. When the pill was expensive, it worked much better than when it was cheap. When it was coming from China, it worked slightly better than when it was coming from the U.S. But it turns out that all of this effect of improvement came from our participants who are from South Asian origin. So we had not half of the people in the sample, but about a third were from Korea, China, and so on. And for those people the Chinese actually worked slightly better. The effect of the price was much larger, but for these people. And finally, what we saw was that for people who actually had more real experience with pain in the recent past, the effect of the price was actually bigger. And the way I think about it is the following. You know, one of the models for placebo is based on Pavlovian conditioning. You pop a pill. I mean, if you think about Pavlov's dog, the dog was anticipating the future and its physiology, salivation, was becoming closer and closer in time to fit with this anticipated future. Plus, one of the models for placebo is the same. You anticipate pain relief, 
there's a consequence, you start secreting your own opioids. Now, for that, conditioning could actually be helpful, that if people had more painful experience in the past and they actually took more pain medication, their placebic response could be actually higher, and as a consequence, they're more influenced by both placebo and derogation of placebo by charging too little for it. Um, now, the thing is that if, if we think about what, what, what kind of this means, price is just one kind of market variables. There's all these other ones. And, you know, from my perspective, placebo is wonderful. I know that many physicians think of it as a nuisance variable, and it is nuisance when you do medical research. But in the applied setting, you know, placebo is something we should, we should really want. I mean, it has very low side effects, not at all, hopefully. It's generally cheap to produce. I mean, we should learn how to harness this power rather than worry about it. When you got your results that showed that there was effect for the price of the placebo or the printed material that your patients got, your study subjects got, were you surprised to see the difference? I was very hopeful it will, it will come out. I was so hopeful that I was delighted by that, but I don't think I was, I was surprised. I was surprised with the China effect. But we did just complete a study now in which we tried to take it to another level. So if you think about it, pain is really not an objective experience because it is inherently subjective. So we did a test in which we gave people sunglasses and we asked them to read information that was kind of very hard to read over a very bright light. And we told them that the glasses had UV protection, which would help with eliminating some of the brightness. And it turns out that the Armani glasses did much better than the mango glasses. Now, I don't know the mechanism, right? Can people really try to read better? Does it really help? I mean, how does it work? But this, for example, just completely baffled me. We're trying to push this effect further and saying, like, what What else can we do with this thing? But the, the sunglasses just completely amazed me. You tell somebody the glasses are Armani? And all of a sudden, they actually can filter brightness better. That is pretty amazing. Well, let me ask you this. Given some of this research that you've done, do you think there should be a more intentional effort to educate students, residents, physicians to harness this power? Because I, I don't think that was part of my education. So let me ask you a question. So in some sense, I think that physicians know it. So when people come with viruses, physicians often give people antibiotics. Knowing that there's no physiological effect. Uh, no physiological effect. And I think they intuitively know that the patient wants to get a pill. And that not only do they want to get a pill, this pill would actually help them. So I think intuitively physicians don't know that. The question is, how do we systematically do more of it? And it's a very difficult moral issue because it means lying to patients. Like, imagine that you're a physician and you know that this patient has something that antibiotics will not help, but you know that they would psychologically would benefit from getting a pill and they would actually get healed faster. Now, if you give them antibiotics, you basically, as a physician, use the 0.1 probability that indeed they do have a bacterial infection and therefore it's not a complete waste. But if you give them a placebo pill, I think the physician would feel like a liar to a much larger degree. Actually, we've done a lot of research on cheating and conflict of interest, which is also very important for the medical profession, of course. But I think there's a difference. Even if you think with almost 100% sure that antibiotic is not the right thing, but it's not yet 100% because nothing is, it's still different from giving placebos. So I think it's a deep moral problem that physicians need to grapple with and figure out what they're comfortable with because it does mean lying, but under what conditions would we lie to people if it actually gives them good intentions? There's an old French medical textbook that basically tells physicians as an advice that medications are best 
oversubscribed when they first come up on the market. Now, why? Presumably because that's when physicians are excited about it. And they transmit that in either intentionally or unintentionally to their patients. That's right. So, you know, we have all these incredible healing power. I mean, the truth is that our bodies are really amazing. We're very far from understanding how our natural immune system works, right? The natural killer cells are just fantastic. And it's true, sometimes they go awry, but, but to a large degree, they're amazing. And if we can do things that helps the body deal with those things better, we would be very well off. And the medical profession has a lot to contribute in that. Confidence, reassurance. I want to thank Dr. Dan Ariely for being our guest. We've been talking about our patients and placebos. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. To listen to our on-demand library, visit us at reachmd.com, register with promo code RADIO, and receive six months free streaming for your home or office. If you have any comments or suggestions, call us at 888-MD-XM157. Thanks for listening.